Join Anthony Esselin, John Warwick Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, August 17th, 2018. Important program, that's all I gotta say. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. Yeah, it's really a mess out there. And we're trying to help open your eyes to show you what Scripture really does say so that you won't be deceived by the people that does, you know, Scripture does warn about, the false teachers and the false prophets and the false apostles that have overrun much of the church today. Now, we're going to do two things on this episode today, so it's going to be kind of a light-ish episode. We're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update, and I'm going to have you listen to, uh, like, literally the most recent uh, installment of It's Supernatural. It was published on Sunday, and it, it, it has Mike Bickle, and Mike Bickle talking about the exact things that we were playing uh, in our sermon reviews for the last two days, you know, Visions and Revelations, Part 1 and Part 2, with Bob Jones. And if you haven't listened to them, you probably should. (laughs) You probably should, uh, because in uh, in the Visions and Revelations sermons that we played, uh, you know, sermon, you know, with two sermons, we chopped it up into two pieces. Bob Jones claimed that there would be a worldwide global famine in the 1990s and that uh, people around Kansas City would be spared from it because of the intercessors. And uh, he made a whole bunch of other claims as well, basically regaled us with all kinds of stories about himself. 
and uh, sound more like uh, you know great adventures from Mormonism or from Islam than it did from Christianity. And uh, and and Bob Jones is dead. He's been dead you know since 2014. And we're going to note something here, and that is is that in the most recent episode of Sid Roth's It's Supernatural from August 12th. Mike Bickle is singing the praises of Bob Jones, and we noted in yesterday's episode how he believed these so-called visions and revelations that Bob Jones was having. He was adding clarity to them, and I want you to see that this is not just something from 1988, from 30 years ago. This is something that is still foundational to IHOP, which should tell you something about the theology there. It is it is from Cuckoo Banana Town, and it's based upon the false prophet, Bob Jones. Yeah, no no, no way around it. He prophesied that there would be a global famine in the 90s, and that never happened. You know, so just saying. All right, so we'll do that first, and then when we're done with that, we're going to listen to a lecture uh, delivered by Phil Johnson. Now, unfortunately, this is not the lecture he delivered at our conference last week, and the reason why it's not is because that audio is not broadcast quality. We have we had a problem with our soundboard. But he did deliver the exact same content of that lecture in a you know at a different church not too long ago, and we were able to secure that audio. And so what we're gonna do for the balance of the program after that is we're going to let Phil Johnson make the biblical case for cessationism. Now, it's important to note that belief in cessationism is not belief that God doesn't heal or that God doesn't answer prayer or that God can't do these one-off miracles where he gives somebody you know, a revelation of something or guides their lives or things like that. That's not what cessationism is. Cessationism is the belief that the apostolic sign gifts, the sign gifts of the apostles, uh, that those have ceased. And this is, so I'll let uh, him make the case for it. And his case, as far as I'm concerned, is biblically rock solid. Only way I can put it. So uh, let's get into the program today since we're going to begin with the prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update. Let's go ahead and do this. Get up right now. That's uh, Robert Tilton, Hubabaconda. So we're heading over to the uh, Sid Roth It's Supernatural program. This was published on August 12th of this year. Um, and it's Mike Bickle's appearance, the name of the episode, This Is Your Finest Hour. 
And in the opening portion of the program, Mike Bickle references the prophecies that we aired in the last two episodes of Fighting for the Faith during the sermon review time. And you need to see this and hear this and note that Mike Bickle literally is still putting them, putting himself, these prophecies forward as if they are true and ignoring the false aspects, the stuff that didn't happen uh, that uh, we played for you as well. But uh, here is Sid Roth and Mike Bickle. I'm here with Mike Bickle, and if you've ever heard of IHOP, I'm not talking about the Pancake Place, uh, International House of Prayer. For 19 years, you've had 24-7 worship, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. For 19 years, you've trained 18,000 students, either three to five year program and this all really started when a very strange prophet <laughs> walked in and introduced himself to you tell me about yes, that yes strange indeed his name was bob jones he's with the lord now and uh, many people know and love bob jones he's impacted many lives over the last 40 years but this was 35 years ago I was 27 years old, pastoring a young adult church, just uh, newly beginning it. We had about 500 young people in our church, and he came walking in as a total stranger. He's about 55 or 60 in overalls, wearing a winter coat. It was about 70 degrees out, (laughs) and told me, declared to me that he knew my future. The Lord had given him many visions and dreams. I didn't believe anything he said. I just thought, this man is so strange. And uh, he said, what you're going to do is, he goes, you're going to be leading a ministry one day, 24 hours a day with singers and musicians. They're coming from all over the world, young and old. And you're going to go 24 hours a day because God is calling a prayer movement, a worship movement to be combined together. It's going to go across the earth. And I don't mean my deal is going to go across the earth, but he's going to do it sovereignly. And we're going to be. A catalytic, uh, we're going to have a catalytic part of this as many other places will as well. And I said, 24 hours of singers and musicians, like, why would we do this? He goes, because the greatest revival in history is yet ahead of us. And the salvation of Israel and the Lord is going to raise up this mighty prayer movement in the earth. Anyway, that was 35 years ago. He told me that day a bunch of things, but he saw smartphones 35 years ago, smartphones. He said, you're going to be uh, moving from your part of town. We lived in the, our church was in the affluent part of town. You're going to move to the blue collar part of town. This is in Kansas City. Yeah, in Kansas City, where Harry S. Truman lived. After that was the oddest, most random thing I heard. He said, because Harry S. Truman was the man God used to cause Israel to become a nation in 1948. Right, and I thought, <clears throat> yeah, we heard that uh, during our sermon review time. So you'll note here, Mike Bickle is referencing the visions and revelations sermons that we played here at Fighting for the Faith, and he's kind of cherry picking the stuff from it because Bob Jones clearly gave false prophecies in the midst of all of that, and uh, but he just ignores those bits and you know kind of keys in on the things that he thinks were. Uh, <clears throat> were true. 
Now, I, I bring all of this up. We're not going to play this out in its entirety, and you, you get the idea. I wanted to demonstrate that what we've been playing for the last two days, that's still as relevant today as ever. It's the core at the core of the narrative regarding the founding of IHOP. It's part of the DNA of IHOP. And over and again, you know, as we were listening to this, the one thing that was clearly not preached and proclaimed was sound doctrine. And uh, in Christ and him crucified for our sins, Bob Jones didn't even, you know, despite the fact that he was claiming that he was receiving direct revelations from God, was not, didn't even have a clue that the RLDS, the Reformed Latter-day Saints, that they were a cult. And uh, much of the theology that he spewed in those revelations were far astride of what God's Word says, and we noted that along the way. But Mike Bickle, I mean, just this past weekend, is literally putting, you know, putting Bob Jones forward as a true prophet and recalling the things that we had just listened to from 30 years ago on this episode of Fighting for the Faith, or these episodes of Fighting for the Faith. You get the idea. Now, what we're going to do from this point forward is we're going to change gears, and we're going to listen to Phil Johnson, who was just in town for the Pirate Christian Radio Conference, and we're going to listen to his lecture where he makes a biblical case for cessationism, and just compare the biblical precision and accuracy that Phil Johnson is working with as he makes the biblical case for cessationism and can and just compare it to the wackerdoodle nonsense that we've been hearing from you know the NAR and the charismatics not just in the past few episodes of fighting for the faith but like throughout the entire history of fighting for the faith and you'll be able to see that the the biblical veneer that they slap on to their movement and the biblical arguments that they make for the the strange manifestations and the false prophecies that they give, the, all of that will come crumbling down uh, in the hearing and hearing the the biblical case for cessationism. So I, I think this is one of this is an important episode of fighting for the faith. So grab a Bible, grab a Bible, and uh, let's go ahead and get to it. Here is Phil Johnson in the biblical case for cessationism. Well, greetings, and thank you for having me here. Um, I've been looking forward to this conference for a long time. Uh, Justin Peters and I did a similar sort of abbreviated event, uh, what was it, about six months ago in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, about a half mile from uh, Kenneth Hagin's headquarters, wasn't it? (laughs) And uh, so uh, we're expecting a more friendly audience here. And uh, I, I drew the assignment to talk about cessationism, the cessation of the miraculous gifts. That's probably the hardest message we're going to hear t- today. Uh, it's, in, in the first place, a little more technical than the others, but also it's one thing to expose the errors of the prosperity movement, which we're intending to do today, but it's another thing to, to go to the heart of the charismatic error and convince people today, especially, that their experiences uh, and that the things that they cling to as, as, as if these were the proofs of their relationship with God have really no basis in Scripture. And that's what I propose to do in this hour. So to start with, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
1 Corinthians 12. This is one of the this is the key passage in the New Testament that talks about the miraculous gifts. And so in this session we'll tackle this topic that could be the single most controversial aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry. We're going to look at what the Bible says about the charismatic gifts. And we're going to focus on the gifts that are listed here in verses 8 through 10. And you'll notice as we go through this passage, these are miraculous and mostly revelatory gifts. The utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, faith. And I think the context suggests here that he's talking about a supernatural measure of faith. Because all these gifts, other than that one, are clearly supernatural. Gifts of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, the ability to distinguish between spirits and various kinds of tongues and interpretation of tongues. So this is a category of spiritual gifts that he's giving here. And it stands in sharp contrast to the gifts that you'll find listed in Romans 12, where you you have these gifts named preaching, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, and mercy. And the Romans 12 gifts are ministry-related abilities. The gifts listed there in Romans 12 are neither supernatural nor revelatory. It's a whole different category of gifts. Now, to be fair, the first gift in that Romans 12 group is given in most English versions as prophecy, which is a word that simply means to speak the divine will. It applies not only to the revelatory gift of prophecy, but also to anyone who is gifted to proclaim the word of God with authority and accuracy. It's what we normally refer to as preaching. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, refers to Scripture as the prophetic word more sure. In other words, Scripture, Peter is saying, Scripture is infinitely more reliable than our own experience or intuition. And he says this, in a context where he is describing his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the, probably the, the most spectacular experience Peter ever had with Christ, this side of the resurrection. And he describes that and says, but we have the prophetic word more sure. He's talking there about the written word of God, the, the scriptures. And so when you proclaim the word faithfully, you're speaking prophetically. Not in the sense that you're getting fresh revelation from God or, or new, new uh, truth revealed or whatever, but in the sense that you are proclaiming prophetic truth with prophetic authority. That is a common biblical use of the word prophecy. You have it, for example, famous incident in, or famous passage in, in Revelation verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 3, where it talks about the two witnesses in, in the end times who will prophesy, it says, for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth and all. What are they doing? They are declaring the word of God with authority. They're preaching. And so, because in Romans 12 you have this word prophecy grouped with a long list of other gifts that are all non-miraculous, I think there in Romans 12 the word prophecy refers to preaching, the prophetic declaration of truth from God's word. And anyway, not to get bogged down in particulars, regardless of how you might nuance each expression in these two chapters, Romans 12, the non-miraculous gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, the miraculous gifts, you clearly have in these two chapters two vastly different lists of spiritual gifts. 
And it's clear that the, the two lists are qualitatively different. They fall into two clear categories, the miraculous and the non-miraculous gifts. Now, uh, occasionally when I've said that, someone will come to me and say, well, if these are gifts from the Holy Spirit, then aren't they all miraculous in that sense? That's a pretty loose usage of the word miraculous. Am I doing something to make that happen? It's true. I, I, I do tend to electrify people. And not always in a good way. All right. So I'm going to ignore that. I hope you can too. Uh, so uh, someone will say, well, all the gifts are miraculous because they all come from God. That, again, is a, a loose usage of the word miraculous. When I speak of miraculous gifts, I'm talking about uh, gifts that themselves involve clear-cut miracles or, or supernatural abilities, not like preaching or, or generosity or those things that are not necessarily miraculous, but spirit-driven. To be spirit-driven is not the same thing as to be Miraculous. So, I hope you can see this, that these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 are special, uh, qualitatively different gifts. We refer to them as the charismata. And let's use that term so that when I speak of the charismata, I, I'm, I'm speaking of special, miraculous, revelatory gifts, uh, gifts that are associated in Scripture with the apostles, the signs of an apostle. Not speaking of garden variety gifts like mercy and service and teaching. Now, the distinctive claim of contemporary charismatic and Pentecostal teaching is that the charismata, these miraculous gifts, are available today the same way they were in apostolic times. That's the whole basis of charismatic theology, that all of the gifts continue today and all of these gifts are available to basically every Christian. So that the miraculous and revelatory gifts that you see manifested in the book of Acts and the early church, those things never ceased, the charismatics say. All those gifts are available, and they are fully operational today, just as they were in apostolic times. That view is called continuationism. It's the idea that the charismata continue to be viable spiritual gifts, commonly manifested in the church today. In other words, they claim everything the Holy Spirit was doing in the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, all of that is still going on today. That's their claim. Now, the opposing view, the view I hold, is cessationism, the belief that those miraculous and revelatory spiritual gifts pertained uniquely to the apostolic era, and those gifts ceased at some time before the end of the first century or thereabout. I'm a cessationist, and it is my contention that to one degree or another, even if you're here from a charismatic church and, and would call yourself a charismatic, to one degree or another, I'm going to argue you are probably a cessationist as well. Even if you call yourself a continuationist, you don't really believe the Holy Spirit is doing everything today that he was doing in the early chapters of Acts. If you're a true continuationist, you're not only a rare person, you're, you're probably harboring some very dangerous ideas. And I want to make that argument in this hour. And I'll start with this. It, it's clear, and I think it's indisputable in, in Scripture that the miraculous gifts of the apostolic era had a specific and clearly defined purpose. 
And I contend that it is also clear from Scripture that those gifts did diminish in both frequency and importance, and they faded from use after the era described in the book of Acts. And that, by the way, was years before the New Testament canon was complete. And I want to show you why I believe that. First, I want to acknowledge that these days, and, and this, is un, this is one of the things that makes our era unusual in all of church history, but these days, cessationism seems to be a minority opinion. It was practically standard evangelical doctrine for centuries until about 60 years ago or so. Prior to the 20th century, it would have been hard to find any Protestant who believed that the charismata continued uninterrupted from the time of the apostles through all of church history. You had Catholics making lots of fantastic claims about miracles, both visible and invisible. They, had, they talked about papal infallibility and apostolic succession and whatever. But even they would not have argued that the gifts operated in the same manner and proportion that you see them in the book of Acts. And until the charismatic movement seeped into the Catholic Church, for example, speaking in tongues was virtually unknown among Catholics. Even the early charismatics claimed that they had recovered the spiritual gifts. That was their original claim. They did not try to teach that the charismata had continued in common use ever since the era of the apostles. The early charismatics would not have made that claim. They couldn't make that claim, mainly because it's a simple matter of historical fact that those gifts did not continue unabated throughout church history. From the second half of the first century until the dawn of the 20th century, with the exception of a handful of assorted kooks and heretics, no one of any any influence or repute, no one even claimed to have the gift of speaking in tongues. That gift simply was not part of church life for more than 1900 years. Likewise, with the other miraculous gifts, there are isolated reports as you dig through church history, isolated reports of, of fairly rare miraculous healings, but no one credibly demonstrated anything that could be called a gift of healing. No one. Now, a number of people did claim to have special prophetic gifts. There were lots of Gnostics who made that claim. There were a couple of very strange prophetesses, women, in the Montanist cult, who supposedly would go into a trance and deliver words of knowledge. And then you have various people like Joseph Smith and Ellen G. White who founded dangerous cults. And there were other self-proclaimed prophets who drifted around the fringes of orthodoxy. Savonarola, for example, one of the predecessors of the Protestant Reformation, claimed to have the gift of prophecy. The charismatics will sometimes point out that even Charles Spurgeon believed the Lord had providentially given him supernatural insight on a few occasions. Spurgeon, it wasn't his theological view because he frequently warned people that is, it is dangerous to, to think that some spontaneous thought that suddenly appears in your head is a message from God. And he never claimed that he had the gift of prophecy, but charismatics do occasionally point to Spurgeon's flashes of intuition and a couple of incidents in his life and say, well, Spurgeon was one of us. He was a charismatic. Well, he wasn't. 
But anyway, you try to account for prophetic claims in church history, one thing stands out very clearly. In contrast to the almost nonstop claims we hear today from people who think God is giving them private revelation, claims like that are uncommon and exceptional if you take the history of Orthodox Christianity as a whole. And by Orthodox, I don't mean Eastern Orthodox. I mean Christians with sound doctrine. And in fact... I wish I had time to give you a broad overview of the groups and individuals throughout church history who tinkered around with miraculous gifts and tried to exercise them. That in and of itself would be instructive because for the most part they're just kooks and cranks and founders of cults, spiritual eccentrics, including the first 30 or 40 years worth of 20th century Pentecostal miracle workers. Kooks and cranks. And also the vast majority of charismatic televangelists who are out here today. And, and Justin Peters is going to prove that to you later today. Kooks and cranks. The, the masters of charismatic hype like Benny Hinn and Rick Joyner and the, the lineup of clowns and charlatans who dominate the Christian television, religious television. But it's a simple fact of church history that the mainstream of believers who have been most theologically orthodox, most biblical, they have not claimed or believed that they have apostolic miracle gifts at their disposal. That's never been the belief of mainstream biblical Christianity. In the past 50 to 75 years or so, the tide has turned in a dramatic way. And we live in a generation where our, our ancestors, our spiritual ancestors, believers in Scripture... Orthodox Protestants would think the church today has gone crazy. I think that too. And I would guess today that a majority of evangelicals, including some pastors and Bible teachers whom even I respect, include many non-charismatics among them, have adopted a continuationist view. Now, how, can, how you can be a continuationist and a non-charismatic is beyond me, but I meet them all the time. And the reason they give invariably is that they don't believe cessationism is taught in the Bible. And so they'll say, well, I can't be a cessationist because I don't see that taught in Scripture, but I'm not a charismatic either. And what they're saying is specifically that there is no verse in Scripture that says the charismatic gifts would cease at a particular date or time. And the one passage in Scripture that does say prophecies will pass away and tongues will cease is 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8. In fact, you, if you have your Bibles open, you're just a, a page or two away from that at most. 1 Corinthians 13 8, which does say that prophecies will pass away, tongues will cease. And yet the context of that verse seems to point to a time yet future when we will see Christ face to face. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And, and indeed, I would agree, that seems to be talking about the return of Christ and our meeting Him in glory. And so I would agree, 1 Corinthians 13.8 is not a definitive or convincing cessationist text, certainly not considered by itself. So the bottom line is, there is no definitive proof text, single text, that 
tells us the miracle gifts would cease at the end of the apostolic era or at any other point in time. As a cessationist, I'm willing to concede that point, but I don't find that argument particularly persuasive because it's not really different from the argument of the Jehovah's Witness who points out that there's also not a single proof text that proves the doctrine of the Trinity. What's our answer to that? The doctrine of the Trinity is the fruit of comparing Scripture with Scripture and understanding everything the Bible teaches about the Godhead. And the same thing, that same principle applies to cessationism. Those of us who are cessationists base our conviction not on a single proof text or an exegetical argument. It's a theological conclusion that we draw from a number of biblical, historical, and doctrinal arguments. To begin with, Scripture does teach very clearly that the charismata, these these miraculous gifts, had a specific foundational and temporary purpose. They're part of a hierarchy of supernatural signs and wonders that were associated with the founding of the church. That hierarchy is outlined in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 28 through 30. And so you're there. This text expressly states that the miraculous gifts are not given universally to everyone in the church. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And Paul is using a rhetorical form that clearly assumes the answer is no. Gifts of tongues and miracles are not for everyone, just like not everyone in the church is an apostle. Now, I would be willing to bet that regardless of your views about the charismatic gifts, unless you are someone who is far out on the fringe of charismatic lunacy, you probably believe that the apostolic office ended with the death of the apostle John. Here's the thing. There's no proof text for that. I'm fairly certain that almost everyone in this room shares the historic Protestant conviction that the canon of Scripture is complete and closed. There is no easily refutable proof text for that either. The biblical and historical rationale you use to justify your belief that the canon is closed and the apostolic era is over is the very same biblical and theological logic that persuades me that the miraculous gifts served their purpose in the apostolic generation and they no longer function in the church. And I'll go further. I think even if you're charismatic, in your heart of hearts, you believe that as well. Because no one but the rankest charismatic crackpot would ever claim to be a pure and complete non-cessationist, continuationist. Even if you are a Charismatic. Even if you say you believe all the charismatic gifts are functioning today in exactly the same way they did in the book of Acts, I doubt, seriously doubt, that you would be willing to put that claim to the test. In 40 years as a Christian, I have never once encountered, and I grew up in Tulsa, by the way, the, the, the mecca of charismatic <laughs> craziness. Not, not only is Kenneth Hagin there, that's the home of Oral Roberts University and, and uh, uh, you know, Tulsa's slogan because it's also big 
uh, oil production territory. They used to call themselves the oil capital of the world. Uh, a former pastor of mine, actually it was Warren Wiersbe, used to refer to Tulsa as the oral capital of the world. Because <laughs> Oral Roberts was there. But, and I grew up with that in my backyard. My best friend uh, was the son of a famous charismatic faith healer. So I grew up in this sort of context. And I have never once encountered a verifiable, authentic, apostolic quality miracle, nor have I ever met a charismatic who is willing to subject his miracle gift claims to any kind of careful biblical scrutiny. You think about this. Millions of people claim to be speaking in tongues, but are there any verifiable cases of recognizable, translatable, identifiable languages such as we see at Pentecost, where people actually understood the message in their mother tongue. And yeah, you'll hear stories about that, but it happens everywhere, and everybody has cell phones and video recorders. Is there a single tape recording of, of an incident like that? There's not. Has any charismatic preacher truly raised a Eutychus from the dead? Can you point to a single charismatic who claims to have a gift of healing, who has a record of successful healings like Peter's or Paul's. Let's consider the biblical data. And, and sadly, we barely have time this morning really for a high-altitude overview, but I'm going to try to be as thorough and as fair as I can with this. Early in the book of Acts, you have miracles as a key part of the story. The book starts, of course, with the, the miracle of Pentecost, and then in Acts 3, Peter and John are walking to the temple and they encounter a beggar, a paraplegic, lame from birth. Peter looks at him, Acts 3 verse 6, and says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the guy is instantly and completely healed. Acts 5.12 tells us, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And verse 15 says, They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The pe people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And listen to this. They were all healed. All of them. Now, again, I apologize for the speed with which we have to cover this, but just notice, the amazing outpouring of apostolic miracles continues all through the book of Acts. Jump to chapter 19, verse 11, and it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, these are the signs of an apostle Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 12. The proof that, or 2 Corinthians 12, the proof that he spoke and taught with full apostolic authority. Those miracles verified his claims of authority. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, it says in Acts. So how extraordinary were these miracles? They weren't just invisible ailments. They weren't, you know, migraines and backaches. You can be absolutely certain that they also weren't the sort of sleight-of-hand tricks you see today like leg lengthening. 
In fact, you want an example? Near the end of Paul's third missionary journey, Paul is in Troas. His sermon runs a little long past midnight. Eutychus drifts off. He falls from a third-story window and dies instantly from the impact. Verse 10, But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Eutychus Notice this. He didn't even have to take time off while the bruises and broken bones healed up. He was fully and instantly healed. All right, we're going to pause Phil Johnson's lecture right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. When we come back, the balance of this lecture by Phil Johnson on making the biblical case for cessationism. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Presents Church Day Select. Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day two. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating, to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day three. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle 
Because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus Walk walk is is a trap. If your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. (laughs) Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the mega pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. (laughs) Maybe the world would be better off if they did. Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. 
Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the Bible actually teaches cessationism. Because it does. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Uh, when you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and the rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable, too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of Phil Johnson's lecture on the biblical case for cessationism. Here we go. Now, look at the final miracle recorded in the book of Acts. It happens on the island of Malta. In Acts chapter 28, verse 7, the chief man of the island, this is the governor of the island, named Publius, has a father who is sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. Dysentery, not not as dramatic perhaps as raising the dead, but it, it is significant, I think, because... 
about a decade later, sometime after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, but before his final incarceration there when he was put to death, Paul learns that Timothy is battling some kind of intestinal affliction, and he includes some simple medical advice in that first epistle. 1 Timothy 5.23, No longer drink any water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He's, he's prescribing that wine for medicinal purposes, to kill whatever amoeba was causing uh, Timothy distress. So why didn't he take one of those aprons or handkerchiefs and cut a little piece of it and mail? That's what the televangelists today do. But it seems clear, doesn't it, that neither Timothy nor anyone near him had a gift of healing like Peter's described in Acts 5, where the sick and afflicted were all healed simply by exposure to Peter's shadow. And Paul, who had previously been able to send to use aprons or handkerchiefs that he had touched, why didn't he just send an anointed prayer cloth to Timothy to heal him? The fact is, miracles are not as common near the end of the apostolic era as they were at the beginning. And by the time Paul is writing his pastoral epistles, he makes no mention of miraculous gifts at all. Why? Because those things served a specific purpose, and it was not to suggest that the life of every Christian is supposed to be one long string of miracles. Signs and wonders and mighty works are expressly called the signs of a true apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The miraculous elements that, that were so common in the early life of the apostolic church had a specific foundational purpose and the purpose was to validate and authenticate the apostles' authority. So the apostles themselves were instruments of divine revelation. And the miracles were verification that these men who claimed to be speaking for God were indeed speaking the truth of God with God's authorization. In the words of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, God was bearing them witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. That's Hebrews 2. That's what Hebrews says about the spiritual gifts, these miraculous gifts. They had this specific purpose. The Spirit distributed them according to His will. And they were, they were given to bear witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and these gifts to what the apostles were teaching. But you might ask, well, weren't miraculous gifts also bestowed on people who were not apostles. In Acts 8, for example, Philip, who's not an apostle, is doing miracles in Samaria. That's where Simon Magus, remember, tries to buy the power to work signs and wonders. And notice carefully what Scripture says. Acts 8, verse 18, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. See, Philip had no power to convey miraculous gifts through the laying on of hands. That was the prerogative of the apostles. Walt Chantry has a superb little book published by Banner of Truth called Signs of the Apostles, and he points out that every recorded instance of men in the church receiving these miraculous gifts occurred under the direct ministry of an apostle. 
<coughs> so that even the general exercise of miraculous gifts in the church served as a testimony to the prophetic authority of the apostles. That's what it was for. And indeed, how could it be otherwise? Because think about this. If every Christian had the power to appropriate miracle gifts for himself, whether he did it by faith or by any other means, signs and wonders would not be helpful at all as the signs of an apostle. If you want an exegetical argument in favor of cessationism, there you are. These are signs of an apostle. And furthermore, you can see evidence in Scripture itself that once the foundational purpose of these sign gifts was fulfilled, the signs and wonders never became a major aspect of daily church life and worship. They were not intended for the ongoing ministry of the church. That was not their purpose. The priority then, as now, was the preaching of the gospel, not doing signs and wonders. Amen. Jews demand signs, Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two, but we preach Christ crucified. Amen. Yeah. And once the message was fully authenticated, the miracles quickly fade into the background of all the epistles that instruct us on church life, church leadership, ministry priorities, and Christian living. Only 1 Corinthians, the earliest of the Pauline epistles, is the only one that even mentions the charismata. And that is to rebuke the Corinthians for their abuse Amen. and their undue fascination with the miraculous elements. Amen. If you read what Paul is actually saying in chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, he's rebuking the Corinthians for being obsessed with these miraculous gifts. And he says, a better gift would be one that people could understand, where the gospel is made clear. And then after 1 Corinthians, not one later epistle even mentions supernatural gifts. Even James, a fairly early epistle, doesn't tell us to look for people who have gifts of healing. It instructs sick people to summon the elders of the church and enlist their prayers. Now, the standard charismatic answer to that argument is that, well, that violates the principle of Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's a favorite, you know, charismatic proof text. Well, let's test that by comparing Scripture with Scripture, shall we? Because in the first place, uh, Hebrews 13, 8 says nothing whatsoever about the, the charismatic gifts, much less... Does it answer the question of whether the charismata have ceased? It's a statement about the unchanging character of Christ. And that verse, in fact, is one of the great proof texts on the deity of Christ because it shows that he is immutable. He's unchanging in his character and his attributes. But it doesn't teach that all of God's dealings with believers are all the same in every era. In fact, we know that's not the case. We know that from Scripture. We know, for example, that some important things have changed from the Old Testament to the New. In fact, the whole point of the book of Hebrews, the very book that contains that verse, the whole point is that the ceremonial aspect of the Old Testament law is no longer binding on believers in the New Testament era. He's urging his Hebrew readers to keep up with the changing program in the way God deals with people, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the whole sacrificial system are no longer part of God's relationship with his people. Why? Because those things all pointed to something better. And now that the better thing has come, 
the inferior things are done away with. You know what? That's the very same argument Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 14 where he deals with the gift of tongues. It is, as a matter of fact, the principle that makes some degree of cessationism a necessity for anyone who takes the Bible seriously. There is ample proof in Scripture to demonstrate that although God Himself is unchanging, He doesn't necessarily manifest His power or reveal Himself in the same way in every age. So Hebrews 13.8 cannot be used to prove that the same apostolic gifts must function in every age. And in fact, the problem with the Hebrews 13.8 argument is it proves too much. If the immutability of Christ proves that everything happening in the book of Acts should be happening now, it therefore would suggest that these things have been happening throughout all of redemptive history. Were miracles commonplace in the Old Testament? For that matter, did anyone ever repeat the miracles Moses did? If the principle of Hebrews 8 proves absolute continuationism, why are miracles so rare even in the Old Testament? After Moses, you have multiple miracles from Joshua, Elisha, Elijah, those three. You have a handful of isolated miracles involving some of the judges and some of the prophets. But miracles are by no means commonplace in the Old Testament. Nor are they a reliable gauge of whether God is at work or not. That's one of the key charismatic errors. Lots of charismatics think God isn't working at all if he's not doing miracles. God is always working providentially, but miracle gifts are extremely rare even in Scripture. And if you want a whole message on that, you'll find at YouTube the message I did at Strange Fire called Providence is Remarkable where the point I'm making is God is at work in everything that happens, not just the unexplainable or, or rare, and certainly not only in miracles. Consider John the Baptist. Here's what Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11. He said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's an amazing statement from Christ, right? If miracle-working ability is a measure of a person's greatness or power, you might expect someone like John the Baptist to be the most amazing miracle worker the, the world had ever seen. According to Luke chapter 1, verse 17, John the Baptist was sent before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. But, listen to John 10, 41. John did no miracle. He never did a single miracle. What happens to the typical charismatic application of Hebrews 13.8 in light of John the Baptist's ministry? And in fact, the question must be asked. If the immutability of God means he can never alter any gifts or offices in the church, why don't we have apostles who can teach with full apostolic authority today? Now, I'll grant you that there have been a few charismatic leaders who claim apostolic authority from themselves. They are the kooks and crackpots. And they typically prove that by weird things they say and do. But evangelical charismatics, the vast majority of charismatics that we would encounter in our circles, they don't really believe there are apostles today who have the same infallible authority as the apostles in the early church. You know, men with infallible teaching authority 
the same as Peter and James and John in the New Testament. I have read and researched a number of charismatic books, and only a few fringe groups and extremists claim real New Testament apostolic authority for their leaders. And those that do always abuse that authority. They always do. There are some who use the term apostle, but they'll always qualify that by insisting that the apostleship they recognize today is really a lesser kind of apostleship than the infallible authority that belonged to the apostles in the first century. Because it does become clear very quickly, those who call themselves apostles and like to use that as a title to describe themselves, it's always pretty obvious these are fallible people, grossly fallible in many cases. And so they tone it down and say, well, it's a different kind of apostleship, a lower sort of apostleship, a lowercase apostle. But think through the implications of that position. By arguing for a lesser kind of apostleship, they are actually conceding that the New Testament gift of apostleship has ceased. They have, in effect, themselves embraced a kind of cessationism. So let me say this plainly. Every true evangelical, every true believer in Scripture holds to some form of cessationism. We all believe that the canon of Scripture is closed, right? We don't believe we should be seeking new inspired material to, the, to add to the New Testament canon. We hold to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's Jude 3. Delivered in the person of Christ and through the teaching of his apostles and then inscripturated in the New Testament. We believe Scripture as we have it today is complete. And those who don't believe that aren't really evangelicals. They're cultists and false teachers who would add to the Word of God. But notice this. If you acknowledge that the canon is closed and the gift of apostleship has ceased, you've already conceded the heart of the cessationist argument. And that's not all. Many leading charismatics go even further than that. They will freely admit that all the charismatic gifts that are in operation today are of a lesser quality than the gifts we read about in the New Testament. They have to admit that because it's obvious. For example, Wayne Grudem wrote a book titled The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today. Crossway published his book back in 1988. It's been extremely influential among charismatics and influential in, in, in opening the door to the charismatic movement for a lot of people who previously were cessationists. And in that book, which is written to defend the practice of seeking personal prophecies directly from God, Grudem says that no responsible charismatic holds the view that prophecy today is infallible and inspired revelation from God. So if you read the book and understand what he's saying, he is make, he's differentiating between these words of prophecy you'll hear in the typical charismatic church today and the words of the more sure words of prophecy that we have written in Scripture. He says, charismatics are actually arguing for a lesser kind of prophecy. Now, this is a charismatic making this argument, which he says, today's prophecy is not on the same level as the inspired prophecies of the Old Testament or the New Testament apostles. And he says, today's prophets don't even claim to be infallible. He writes, quote, there is almost uniform testimony from all sections of the charismatic movement today that today's prophecy is impure and it will contain elements which are not to be obeyed and trusted. 
That's what Grudem himself says. And another leading charismatic theologian today is Jack Deere, a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, who admits in his, his book, the book that really made him, gained him his fame as a charismatic, called Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit, he admits that he has not seen anyone today performing miracles or possessing gifts on the same level that you see manifested in the apostolic era. He argues throughout his book that modern charismatics don't even claim to have apostolic quality gifts and miracle abilities. One of his main lines of defense against critics of the charismatic movement is his claim that modern charismatic gifts are actually lesser gifts than the ones that were available in the apostolic era. And therefore, he says, you can't hold us to apostolic standards. That's his defense. But consider the implications of that claim. Today's apologists for charismatic theology have, in effect, conceded the entire cessationist argument. They have virtually admitted that they themselves are cessationists of sorts. They believe the true apostolic gifts and miracles have ceased. And they're admitting that what they are claiming today is not the same as the gifts described in the New Testament. Contemporary tongue speakers don't speak in understandable dialects or translatable languages the way the apostles and their followers did at Pentecost. Not one single tongue speaker has ever gone to a foreign mission field and miraculously been able to preach the gospel in the tongue of his hearers. Charismatics have to go to language school just like everybody else. No modern worker of miracles or signs and wonders can duplicate apostolic power. It just can't be done. Even the most vocal advocates of the gift of prophecy admit that no modern prophet can legitimately claim to have infallible authority. And my question is, what good is prophecy like that? What does it tell you? I mean, how is it any more reliable than my own intuition? No modern faith healer can actually produce instant visible healings like the healings we see in the New Testament. Although some of them make fantastic claims, no modern faith healer is opening the eyes of people born blind, and no one is able to make a truly lame person walk. People like that are usually screened out of the healing lines at charismatic healing meetings. You're going to talk about that, right? So I won't, I won't elaborate, but Justin will. <laughs> but above all, Despite all the fanciful and unsubstantiated legends that get circulated constantly, despite the vast numbers of charismatics who claim the ability to do even greater works than Jesus himself, there is not one single credible, verifiable case of a charismatic miracle worker who could raise the dead. And the simple fact is that the gifts that operate in the charismatic movement today are not the same gifts described in the New Testament. And even most charismatics ultimately have to admit that. In a very helpful book, if you can find it, buy it, a book called uh, Satisfied by the Promise of the Spirit by Thomas Edgar. It was published back in 1996. I think it's out of print, but you can find used copies of it. Thomas Edgar, the author, writes this, quote, The charismatic movement gained credence and initial acceptance by claiming their gifts were the same as those in Acts. For most people, this is why they are credible today. That is because people believe the charismatic movement offers the same promise of 
the same gifts described in the New Testament. And yet now, he says, when challenged by the obvious fact that their gifts do not meet biblical standards, one of their primary defenses is the claim that today's gifts are not the same as the gifts in the New Testament. Faced with the facts, they've had to revoke the very foundation of their original reason for existence. Unfortunately, the popular appeal of the charismatic movement is, is now so widespread that most charismatics don't really today even trouble themselves about whether those things are biblical or not. The question of whether the apostolic gifts were intended to operate through the whole church age is that question is increasingly ignored as the church of our generation becomes more and more open to increasingly bizarre phenomena and less and less open to serious theological dialogue. The charismatic movement has filled churches with people who laugh uncontrollably but wouldn't be capable of carrying on a two-minute-long conversation about the doctrine of justification by faith. That is a terrible tragedy. And the truth is, even in Scripture, if people studied the flow of the New Testament, there is ample evidence that miracles were extraordinary, rare events, and they were always associated with people who spoke inspired and infallible utterances. And it's obvious that the miracles in the New Testament were dramatically declining in frequency even before the canon drew to a close, even before the apostolic era ended. Here's the problem. Strict continuationism, as, it, as it's usually represented, is untenable in light of both Scripture and church history. You can't hold to that view and be faithful to Scripture or take a realistic view of church history. Now, before we end this session, I want to talk briefly with you about miracles in general. Uh, I, I went through a bit of this in that message called Providence is Remarkable. If you want to uh, listen to that maybe in your spare time and, and delve into this more deeply. But I, I want to talk about miracles. We tend to use that word miracle way too loosely. I said this at the outset, and I want to elaborate on it. You know, we, we untie a hard knot in a shoelace and say, that's a miracle. You know? And I'm glad if you give God the credit for giving you the grace and the strength and the patience necessary to untie that knot. He deserves thanks for everything that ever goes right in this sin-cursed world. God deserves glory for that. But untying that knot was a work of providence. It wasn't even an extraordinary work of providence much less was it a miracle. What is a miracle? Christians commonly label things miracles when they really are not. You know, here's a guy who has a financial need. He prays that the Lord will meet it. And the same day, he receives a gift of some money in exactly the amount he needed. That's happened to me, right? Did God answer that prayer? Absolutely. Was that a miracle? Absolutely not. It was an extraordinary gift of providence. It was an act of divine providence. It's God working through normal means, orchestrating events under his kind providence in order to answer our prayers, and he does that on a daily basis. It's not a miracle. It's, it's a demonstration of divine providence, and that's an important distinction. People cheapen the biblical concept of miracles and signs and wonders by referring to every answer to prayer as a miracle. It doesn't diminish the power or the reality of God one bit to acknowledge that he ordinarily works through providence, not by miraculous means. 
In fact, let me give you some definitions to remember. First, what do I mean by providence? Providence is God's faithful moment-by-moment control over everything that he has made to ensure that everything achieves the end he chose. It's God's sovereignty at work, basically. God didn't create this universe and wind it up like a clock and then abandon it to let it run on its own. Some people envision God standing apart from his creation and intervening only occasionally and then always miraculously. That, in fact, I think is at the root of the charismatic error. Charismatics think if God's not doing miracles, then there's no evidence of him at all. But Scripture teaches that God exercises ongoing control of every detail of everything that happens. Ephesians 1.11, He works all things after the counsel of His own will. Romans 8.28, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. In order to fulfill that promise, He has to be active in all things. Answers to our prayers normally come through acts of providence, not by miracles. We sometimes say we're praying that God will do a miracle in answer to our prayer about, I don't know, financial needs or health needs or whatever. But when we pray for those things, we're not necessarily praying for miracles in the biblical sense. In fact, we're not usually expecting or needing miracles. We're asking God through providence to grant the thing we ask. And those acts of providence, even extraordinary acts of providence are not miracles. Now again, and I want to stress this. So if you're going to take any notes, be sure you get this one down. To say something is not a miracle is not to deny that God did it. God constantly works in our lives through providence. And so to say that he works through providence is not to say he's inactive. I've had people accuse me of that. But really, it's the opposite. He is active in every aspect of our lives, not just the events that appear to be dramatic or spectacular. I've been accused by charismatics of robbing God of glory for denying that every answer to prayer is a miracle. My my reply is, it's the charismatic view that actually robs God of glory by assuming that unless he intervenes in a miraculous way, he doesn't deserve the credit at all. So what is a miracle? In the biblical sense, a miracle is an extraordinary work of God that involves his immediate and unmistakable intervention in the physical realm in a way that contravenes natural processes. It's not necessarily a miracle when your sore knee feels better after you prayed for relief. A miracle would be if God regenerated the cartilage and restored, you know, my ACL completely without surgery or treatment of any kind. That would be a miracle. Regenerate my knee. Now, the subject of miracles is a huge one, and and I regret that time really doesn't permit us to delve more deeply into it than that. I I recommend strongly B.B. Warfield's book, Counterfeit Miracles. But there is one last text that I'm determined to deal with. John 14, verse 12, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, let's consider this in the context of both Scripture and 
church history. He could not possibly mean that they were going to do more spectacular miracles. In point of fact, they didn't do more spectacular miracles. To my knowledge, no one has ever raised from the dead a man who lay in the grave four days and had already started to decompose. But the disciples' works were greater in scope and in effect. They, they took the gospel to the ends of the earth, Acts 13, 47. And, and in fact, that verse, this verse doesn't suggest that the, the gospels were going to do miracles that outshone the miracles of Christ. That wasn't Jesus' point at all. The greater works he was talking about were evangelistic works, not more astonishing miracles. Charismatics sometimes accuse non-charismatics of believing that God is no longer active in his church. But that utterly misses the point because God is active whether he works through miracles or whether he works through acts of providence. In fact, faith that continually demands to be bolstered by spectacular signs and wonders isn't really faith at all. It's unbelief that demands miracles. The faith that rests in the knowledge that God is working through providence is actually a greater faith than the attitude that demands proof through signs and wonders. To demand signs and wonders is to walk by sight rather than by faith. Jesus condemned those who asked for signs and wonders you know, and said, well, I'll believe if you'll do this signs and sign or wonder. Jesus said this, Mark 8, verses 11 and 12, And the Pharisees came forth and began to question him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him, in other words, putting him to the test. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say to you, there shall be no sign given to this generation. True faith doesn't demand signs and wonders. To the eyes of faith, the glory of God is revealed in the simplest act of providence just as clearly as it is revealed in the most definitive miracle, the most dramatic miracle. True believers can see the hand of God clearly in, in everyday events. They don't need miracles to bolster their confidence that God is working all things together for His wise and holy purposes. It's a hardened heart of unbelief that doesn't notice the hand of God in providence. And for that reason, God has sometimes employed miracles to startle sinners and to demand their attention. He does this when he's about to do a new work or when he's about to reveal something important. That's the purpose of miracles in Scripture. And there's no need for it today. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till next Tuesday, I'll be out. But uh, next Tuesday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.